guys. Welcome to the Barnhart Podcast. A little bit different this week. We're doing a our first, actually, Conversations with Anne. And our first guest is someone that I'm, I'm very, very pleased to be able to have a conversation with. And I think this is going to be a really informative discussion. We have Bay McFarlane, who is um, doing absolutely yeoman's work out there trying to defend um, truly, in, in the true Catholic sense, uh, the sacramental bond of marriage and doing lots of work and lots of advocacy, helping people who have been treated unjustly, unjustly abandoned by their spouse, and let's be honest, are being treated unjustly within, you know, the by the local bishop, the chancery, all of that, where there just really isn't, it seems that there isn't a genuinely Catholic um, uh, way to address this whole business of declarations of nullity and what happens when um, a marriage, I, I hate to say when a marriage breaks down, because we're going to get into Bay, I mean, that that really isn't what happens. Um, marriages don't quote unquote break down. Marriage is indissoluble, as, as we both know. But but. Bay is doing yeoman's work and is one of the only voices out there, certainly in the English-speaking world, who's really standing up and defending the bond of marriage and the abuse that's going on in terms of just handing out declarations of nullity like they're candy. So, Bay McFarlane, welcome. It's so good to have you here. Hi, Anne. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, listen, um, can you first give us the like two minute version of of your resume and how exactly it came to be that you, you know, acquired this expertise and um, how how it is that you're now doing this work? Well, I had no idea what goes on in divorce. There wasn't anyone close to me who was divorced, um, no family members, no friends. And then when I started learning about this was because I was a defendant in a no-fault divorce. And I had no idea what goes on in divorce. And what I got was a really quick education on how something is grossly wrong with this picture. Um, Parties who both get married in a Catholic ceremony can be raked through the coals by the civil no-fault divorce process. And um, unless you know someone that's been through it, you don't even understand what no-fault divorce means. In the old days, the government recognized that marriage had contractual obligations towards each other, towards the children, towards the culture. And if somebody reneged on their promises, that somebody was held accountable to repair the damage as as much as possible. And with no-fault divorce, Anybody who wants to renege on their marriage promises is treated exactly the same as the person who's counting on those promises to be upheld. So I started getting this education by of what was going on. I found out that innocent husbands are routinely all over the United States and even the world having their children forcibly removed from them. Children who want to be with dad are forcibly having their children taken away. Um, The parent who earns the most money is being ordered, court-ordered, coerced to pay lots of money, half the property, to the party who reneged on the marriage promises. I mean, if this happened in any other kind of contract, we would have a public outcry, but whatever. I mean, it's not going on. So then what I... Real quick, can you tell us when no-fault divorce roughly started to be introduced and then became basically the law of the land in in the United States? 
Um, in the United States, say, let's say the, the late 60s, there was a movement among, among scholarly lawyers and judges to come up with a uniform marriage and divorce code. So they were meeting every summer or whatever. You can read their records. And then they proposed this bill to legislators. Can, can, California, when Ronald Reagan was governor, was the first one to sign it. I want to say 1969. And they, the way they sold it to the public Actually, there wasn't really even much public debate from what I read in the history. But um, the way it was portrayed is, you know, what's happening now is a, is a silly joke when when Johnny and Susie both want to get divorced because they're just not getting along and they all know that it would be better for them to be separated. The government has no way to give them this divorce that they want because one of them has to pretend that they were committing adultery when they really weren't. So, you know, some, some man would go into a hotel room with his secretary for two hours, take a bunch of pictures from the hotel lo lobby, whatever. So the way it was sold is that we have husband and wife who both come with smiles on their faces knowing they both want a divorce and the government has no way to serve this market. So what we'll do is we'll give those people a way to get a no-fault divorce so that no one has to accuse anybody of something, something like domestic violence or adultery. That's what it was sold as. But what it is in reality is that <clears throat> the spouse who wants to renege on the marriage promises can turn the family over to the government and the government will force a no-fault divorce on the children and the other party. And the rest of the states, excuse me, my voice is getting hoarse. I'm going to take a swig of water. Go ahead. Go right ahead. While you're doing that, let me jump in and make one one observation. First of all, the first time that this this business of no fault divorce happens in the United States is in 1969, which is, of course, the same year that the Novus Ordo mass was promulgated. And if anybody thinks that that's a coincidence, I have a big red bridge out in California that I would like to sell to you real cheap. All of these things are tied together. The second observation, as you were saying that, is I remember when I was a kid um, in the 1980s on television in the afternoons in that block of, of time on television, which we now I or I used to call trash TV, you know, with the talk shows like Oprah and Donahue and and, you know, other trashy programs like that, Geraldo. One of the shows that was shown every afternoon, uh, right after school, right after all the kids were getting out of school and going home, was a show called Divorce Court. And it, it was these fictionalized um, divorce trials, which I don't think that you could ever, you couldn't even show that on TV today because I don't think many people especially young people, even realize or remember that people who wanted to get divorced at any point had to, had to demonstrate that there was a reason why. And so there was this trashy TV show, and it almost always, you know, to be sensational and trashy, it generally revolved around adultery, you know, and oh, drag in a mistress, and people are get going up on the stand and testifying, and then this family court judge is making a ruling about divorce, yes or no, and who gets what and so forth. I think most people... Most people today, especially young people, people younger than me, and I'm 41 right now, listening to this probably don't even understand that you actually had to have a reason to get divorced 
and show this to the state in order to get a divorce. And and it it also speaks to the fact that this is something that nobody understands anymore. The purpose of the state is to back up the church. That that is first and foremost the reason why the state exists. It, the state exists in order to take care of the things and to back up the church. And that is something that's just been completely and totally twisted, which then gets into this. And I know you've talked about this. How can you possibly, how can you possibly get a civil divorce without first getting, first getting uh, permission from the local bishop to even separate from your spouse? Oh my gosh, what, what a concept that is. Then getting the degree of getting the declaration of nullity, if that's even possible. And then it shouldn't it be, Bay, that the very, very, very last step in all of this is getting a civil divorce so that, yes, the, the two spouses can, you know, have separate, you know, tax, tax ramifications, no more financial interconnection. Isn't that completely and totally lost? So I put I put a lot in there. But um, if you would like to talk about how backwards everything is and how you should have permission from the bishop before you even separate from your spouse. <clears throat> how backwards everything is. I, I, <laughs> yeah, it's so backwards. Um, throughout the way I got to be an expert in this is I mm. started going down to our local seminary library and our library is pretty well stocked. And I was reading through what is supposed to happen with separation mm -hmm. and divorce. Mm -hmm. And I found the Canon Law Society of America, which publishes their annual proceedings. They have a big meeting every year and they publish all these papers. And I thought, well, that'd be a good place to know what, what's what's going on. And I started seeing names like Father Richard McBrien, the heretical professor at University of Notre Dame, and Edward right. Curran, the heretical professor from Catholic U. And, and then mm -hmm. I started reading stuff that would send up a yellow flag for any serious Catholic about the churches, the people, and the, it was just, all these red flags started going up to me. It's like, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And at the end of the day, I found the authentic church teaching on marriage is that the church has competence to decide whether or not there's a legitimate reason for separation of spouses at all. The mm -hmm. church has competence to decide what are the obligations of the parties towards each other after a church trial. And the church is the one that should be deciding whether or not someone has a legitimate reason to be separated. And what I mean by that is we have canon law that's based on the Catholic marriage promises. So you promise not to commit adultery when you get married. If you are committing adultery, that's such a grievous offense against marriage that that's a legitimate reason for separation of spouses for the innocent party even though the innocent party is encouraged to forgive. And there's plenty of good counselors that have experience working with couples when someone commits adultery, for example. Mm -hmm. Another reason um, in the canon law about separation of spouses is if one spouse, the guilty spouse, causes grave danger mm -hmm. to the moral or physical um, sta status of the other spouse or children. So if someone's causing grave danger that's a legitimate reason for the innocent spouse to be separated. And if someone is making it impossible for the other spouse and children to practice the faith, those are reasons for legitimate separation of spouses. Everything else is not 
So if someone's really unhappy, if someone gets in petty arguments, if someone is we grew different- apart, we grew apart, which is the classic the classic excuse that you hear. We fell out of love. We grew apart. People change. Yeah. Or they they use words like the marriage ended. I'm like, yeah. hello. You you either you either have a marriage or you don't have a marriage. Marriages don't end until somebody dies. Um, we what's happened is so too many Catholics have adopted the secular vocabulary. Yep. You know, if you're really angry and feeling distant from your spouse, your marriage hasn't ended. Your marriage is not dead. You feel angry and distance from your spouse. So what is the spouse obligated to do in that situation? Um, forgive, go to confession, maybe get good counseling, talk to a good priest, um, get connected with other Catholic couples who've been through issues, go to retrovi. There's all these options that Catholics do, which are totally different than what the secular world tells you because the secular world tells you it's all individualized. You absolutely have a right to a um, divorce like you have a, a right to an abortion. A friend of mine says one of his kids calls it a divorce. You take the word mm. divorce and the word abortion and you get a divorce because mommy got her divorce from the court. Um, and so, I think I mean, I, I, what, what you just said, the phrase that you just said you know, you have a right to a divorce. I think, in fact, I think that's probably what I'll title this interview. I will title it, you do not have the right to a divorce. Nobody has a right to a divorce. Um, but I want to, I want to hone in on something. The, we're talking about physical abuse and this, this is a, non-trivial percentage of people experience this, mostly women, but sometimes men too. Sometimes men are, are absolutely physically abused by their wives. But in this case of physical abuse, is there not such a thing um, in civil law as just a legal separation, which is different from a decree of divorce, meaning, you know, a woman needs to get away. Let's, let's just say it's a woman. A woman needs to get away from her husband who is physically abusing her and possibly the children. There's no doubt that they need to live apart. Can't it without getting divorced. And you know, the, the woman is a faithful Catholic and she, she understands that she's married and that this, this, even, even this business of being physically abused, that doesn't quote unquote dissolve a marriage because nothing dissolves a true marriage. Marriage is, indissoluble. So isn't there a way where if people need to separate like this, that they can go get a civil decree of just separation and that way the the wife can be, can operate um, financially apart from the husband. So for example, the husband couldn't then subsequently drive the wife into terrible debt or attach her to his, to any debts that he incurs especially maliciously, isn't, isn't that a possibility? And isn't that what people used to do? I mean, let's be honest, marriages, people would, would separate and live apart, but nobody, hardly anybody ever got divorced until the early decades of the 20th century. And even then it was extremely rare until the middle, about 1969, as you say, the middle to later part of the 20th century. I remember when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, divorce very much still had a stigma. So what people would do is they would just legally separate and then, but they were still, but they were still married. Is, is that not 
a better option or really the only option for people who are involved in physically abusive marriages? That's one option if it exists in your state. In Ah. some states, the option of a civil separation doesn't exist. However, if a husband is physically abusing his wife, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that's a crime. Yes. And, the, the, you know, a wife would accuse her husband of the crime of, like, assault. Mm-hmm. And then the husband would have to have a trial. And the wife would be needing to prove and due process would occur. Because if the husband really was physically abusing his wife, right. there would be photographs. There would be police reports. There would be doctor's visits. Sure. So perhaps the wife could use the avenue of criminal law to have her husband taken away from her so that Mm -hmm. she could be safe. Mm -hmm. If her state has the option of civil separation, then absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, If the state doesn't have the option of civil separation, civil divorce, according to the catechism, is tolerable Mm -hmm. in limited circumstances in accordance with canon law. The catechism itself references canon law. And then... Part of how things are upside down now is that the canon law says the church has competence to decide the obligations of parties in a trial. Right. If a man is abusive to his wife, that man, according to natural law and divine law, I mean, I'm, I'm not competent ecclesiastically to judge divine law, but I think common sense tells us if a man's abusing his wife, then the wife needs to be protected, and the man should get grow in virtue and stop abusing his wife. And if he's a Catholic and if the wife loves him, she wants him to stop abusing his wife. Abusing yeah, him. Of, and of course. What hap- the, the part of the upside downness of um, the civil intervention is that when a wife files for civil separation, she unknowingly is giving the government control over her children. And then these hangers-on, I'm making the little quotes, these hangers-on get all involved. So you'll have a a court um, parenting consultant or guardian ad litem. And Mm. in a lot of states, the court will order mommy and daddy to pay the wages. I've heard of um, parenting consultant or the court will assign um, a psychologist. It's a court psychologist and the parties are coerced into agreeing to this government psychologist or this person with a government attitude. So once, if the wife is being physically abused by her husband and her husband wants to be really difficult and maybe take the children away from her, by her filing civil separation, she might have her kids ordered to go back and forth between she and her husband because, gee, daddy never abused the children. Daddy just abused mommy. So, gee, mom's being abused by her husband And the outcome she's going to get in the domestic relations court is that the kids will go back and forth between mom and dad half the time. And 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 if they split property, you know, unless they're zillionaires, she's going to lose the marital home because she has to give half of its value to the husband because it's no fault. Civil separation is no fault also. Yeah. 
And then as you were saying that, as you were saying that, this horrible light bulb went off over my head talking about these court-appointed court hangers-on who are there to, again, I'm using the, the scare quotes now, ensure the well-being of the children. Do we not all see that this is going to be used? The children are going to be asked, what have your parents told you about homosexuality? What have your parents told you about transgenderism? Do your Are your parents racist? Do they condemn homosexuality? Do they condemn transgenderism? Have they, and if you, if you are a practicing Catholic, if you are an Orthodox traditional practicing Catholic, clearly, if your children are of a certain age living in the world we live in, you will have started to, you know, explain to them the sixth commandment and mortal sin and so on and so forth. This is, this is clearly a, a camel's nose under the tent maneuver to insert these people, these court people, in giving pe- giving the state even more leverage, more control, and ultimately, I'm sure what it will result in is, yes, I think that we will see Catholics, practicing Orthodox Catholics, ultimately, and this is, I think this is already going on in the UK and in some places in Europe, People having their children taken away from them just because they they get at the state gets access to the children in the name of welfare check check or whatever, interview the children and the children are able to profess the truth about specifically the sixth commandment. And then the and then the state will say, well, no, these children are being raised in a homophobic, transphobic household. Now we have to take the children e- either if the if the opposite spouse is conniving enough, the opposite spouse will just say, oh, I'm completely tolerant of of homosexuality and transgenderism. And, and yeah, it doesn't even have to be that severe as homosexuality and transgenderism. It can be the long-standing church teaching about marriage. Um, I have oh. been corresponding with a husband whose wife did this no-fault thing against the husband. So the children are going back and forth between mommy and daddy. The dad taught his son what the church teaches about separation and annulment, and the court the wife complained to the court about it, and the dad was ordered to have supervised visitation with his son. Oh, yeah, the oh, court well. doesn't—they choose what conversations you're having. Or yeah. if you're a parent who believes the church is teaching on grounds for separation of spouses, and if you say, you know, I love daddy, and the church—the way daddy and I got married—is that you know we should be in the same household, and this whole divorce is just a big mess. Then. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know why daddy left because the church says we should be together. Well, if daddy hears the child say anything about that, daddy and the child can be interviewed by this court psychologist or the court guardian at Lydum, and they can deem that mommy is alienating the children against daddy. Yeah. And that can be used. So teaching your children the truth about marriage, yep. these, these, the divorce system and the people who make their money on it hate that. Because it's challenging their livelihood and they want you to shut up. And th- this is happening all the time. Yep, follow the money. And and it just goes to show you that a lot of people are in denial about how far down this road we are. I mean, I think that we're going to end up to being in a situation where it's basically the same as what went on in France during the French, Re- French Revolution. And then ultimately it will go even farther because 
the level that we're starting from in our culture is so much lower than where the French in the late 1700s were starting from. I mean, most of the French in the late 1700s were mass going Catholics. Look at the level that we're starting from. We are just sprinting towards the kind of depravity, violence and evil that we saw during the French Revolution. And it will get even worse than that. And thank you for correcting me on that. It's it's even worse than we imagine. Yeah, you can't even talk to your you can't even talk to your kids in the context of divorce about what the what the church teaches about this. You you basically have a gag order from discussing the Catholic faith with your own children. Now, I want to turn our attention um and this is well, this is just going to be nauseating to to wade into this mess. But, you know, we have to talk about the bishops and all of this. And and right now, as this is being recorded, what is the date today? Is this the 20th or the 21st? This is the 21st. 21. Yeah, this is the 21st of July, 2018. Um, the Cardinal McCarrick story is, I'm very happy that it's broken. It's getting good traction. The New York Times has two pieces out on it. Yesterday, the Associated Press came out with a piece on it. People are talking about this business of Cardinal McCarrick being a boy raiser. And people are talking about the fact that so much of not just the College of Cardinals, but obviously the 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 episcopacy, um, both in the United States and around the world, has uh, shall we just say a terrifying overrepresentation of sodomites and and people who seem to give every indication that they basically are are following a freemasonic agenda to essentially destroy the catholic church from the inside out and so we taught and so we have questions and and we bring up points like for example bay if if one spouse male or female uh needs to separate physically from their spouse for for whatever reason they need to, uh, the church says this all needs to go through the local bishop. You need to get your bishop's permission before you separate. This all needs to be talked through with the bishop, you know, going through the chancery. And I say those words right now, Bay, and my flesh is just crawling because what, because what that implies is given, given the, the bleak situation in the church right now, and especially among the bishops' conferences, and I mean, the priesthood is bad, but the bishops' conferences are, are even worse. The notion, I mean, what does a Catholic do if you know, and many, many trad Catholics do know, that their local ordinary is a raging heretic, many of them know that the local ordinary is a sodomite, um, and that they are not going to get any Orthodox Catholic help what in the world does a believing Catholic do knowing that this is all supposed to go through the bishop? But, you know, going back to our Lord and the Good Shepherd discourse, um, you know, we're talking about either faithless hirelings at best or outright wolves who are looking to devour souls. What what can you say to us? What what guidance can you give to folks out there who are in this sort of a predicament? Well, Mary's Advocates has a twofold purpose. One is to reduce unilateral no-fault divorce. The other is to support those who are unjustly abandoned. Mm-hmm. And being a spouse who is abandoned is a white martyrdom. So what have all the saints throughout history done 
when they're in a situation where they're on the receiving end of a grave injustice. You offer your sufferings up to God. You, Jesus, I trust in you. You take care of things. You look to people like, I want to say Father Chesniak, who spent, maybe it's Chesek, he spent like 26 years in a in prisons uh, after being a priest and volunteering to be a priest in Poland. And he talks about total abandonment to the divine providence. Mm-hmm. The way, one of the ways we support separated faithful is we network amongst ourselves so that we can support each other walking this walk that is countercultural. Mm-hmm. Um, when one spouse abandons one, you don't say you're not my spouse anymore. You say you're my spouse. I love you. I'm going to aptly correct you with forbearance because I know, as we're taught in Second Timothy two twenty two, that you are entrapped and ensnared by the devil, doing the devil's will. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's a re- retired Roman Rota judge, Cormac Burke, who writes about canon law and personalism, and he um, he says that there's this confusion about the good of the spouses. You know, everyone has to achieve the good of the spouses. And Mm. he says, well, what does this good of the spouses mean in the case of a shipwrecked marriage? Well, for the person who did the abandoning or the adultering or the grave abusing, you know, their good's not looking so clear right now. But in the end of the day, one kind of good of the spouses is your eternal salvation. So for the separated faithful spouse, they pray for the conversion. They pray for the epiphany to happen in the abandoning or the abusing spouse. And it could be, this is what, what um, Cormac Burke says in his article about personalism, is that it could be that the ultimate good of the abandoner, abuser, adulterer occurs before their death and they repent and they convert because of the graces brought into the marriage by the faithful spouse who is offering all their sufferings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I could talk about that a lot. And there's a network of us that support each other. We have monthly meetings. There's a book that we had translated from Italian to English, The Gift of Self, A Spiritual Companion, com- excuse me, The Gift of Self, A Spiritual Companion for Separate and Divorce, Faithful to the Sacrament of Marriage. So if everything else fails and the local ordinary is whatever you said, a sodomite or whatever, I mean, okay, fine. Accept one's reality and choose what you're going to do about it. So So, so that's one thing. So if you have a woman, for example, who's being physically abused by her husband and she needs to get out of there and she knows her, her local ordinary is a faithless hireling. Should she even should she even attempt to go through the chancery or should she just should she take it into her own hands or should her should her priest confessor can the okay. priest confessor I, I, say I'll address, okay okay I'll address that if mm-hmm. and it's easier for me to think about it I'll try on the idea if I'm a wife and my husband is physically abusing me to mm-hmm. the point of being dangerous mm-hmm. one question has to be is it repeated. Or is it a one-time incident? And is separation the only way to protect myself? Because mm-hmm. if it was a one-time incident, that doesn't count. And those three bullet points are something that I got from a canon law commentary from Spain. So okay. if it's repeated and the only way to be safe is to separate, I can separate on my own authority. I don't need the bishop's permission to separate if there's a danger and delay. That's okay. canon okay. law and it's common sense. Yes, The part in the canon law that is black and white is nobody is supposed to petition. 
in the civil forum for civil divorce or civil separation without the bishop's permission. Now, on that, you know, I can't predict how a bishop is going to respond. If I'm a woman in that situation, yeah, I might, you know, go to Mary's Advocates, grab the little template petition, petition my bishop. But when my husband is earning a lot of money and I need support and the civil divorce court might give me money, it's a mess. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't even address that. But what some people do is they use our p- template petition to ask the bishop to, to intervene as re- canon law requires. If the bishop doesn't intervene as canon law requires, mm-hmm. um, I help people write rebuttals. I suggest responses. Um, most of the people who correspond with me, actually all the people, well, not most, most of the people who correspond with Mary's Advocates are not a party who has a spouse that's um, violent. They're mm-hmm. the party that has been abandoned. Right. Most divorces in the United States from the studies I see are not requested because someone is being physically abused. They're being requested because someone feels they fall out of love, their marriage ended, or they yeah. have new romance and they think, you know, I mean, the most ridiculous one is the spouse who abandons, gets his no-fault divorce, goes and petitions while he has a new romance on the side, mm-hmm. goes and petitions for his decree of invalidity of his marriage. The church gives them a slam dunk, simple, loose canon 1095.2 annulment. And yep. then he goes off into the sunset with his new wife. That's the part that is most discouraging because yeah. that's where the church itself in its official capacity is betraying marriage. Okay, so that is a perfect segue, my dear. You just set you set the next question up. And and it is this. I heard a quote by Father Linus Clovis. It's been over a year ago now that I think perfectly sums up the situation that we're in right now. And it is this. The church and the anti-church today occupy the same liturgical, sacramental and juridical space. And that is the end of Father Linus Clovis's quote. And I think I think that is exactly accurate. Eventually, the anti-church is going to completely decouple from the true church. And then, you know, we'll know when it happens because this is all unprecedented. You know, we can't say, well, look for this sign and this sign and we'll know. Well, don't worry. When it happens, it happens and we'll all know. The faithful, it will be obvious because our Lord isn't a jerk and he's not trying to trick anybody or anything. If you're a faithful Catholic, you'll know. However... While we were, we are in this situation that we're in right now, where the anti-church is subsisting in the same, specifically germane to our conversation, Bay, the same um, juridical space. He, here's the here's the sixty four thousand dollar question that I think a lot of people are dancing around and a lot of people don't want to talk about. I think it is patently obvious that m- the vast, vast, vast majority of these decrees of nullity that, like you say, are being passed out slam dunk like candy. The vast majority of of these decrees of nullity, it seems to me, have got to be false, considering that only a few hundred degrees of nullity were issued per year globally up until the middle of the 20th century, when, when the asteroid hits and you know, the failed Second Vatican Council happens, the Novus Ordo Mass is promulgated, all these things come together at the same time. 
So you, you've got these people who are unjustly abandoned and just exactly like the example that you laid out, obviously someone is just getting a piece of candy, um, degree of nullity. That's what Bergoglio is pushing, pushing, pushing. Just get it so that getting a degree of nullity is basically going down to the chancery, handing in presumably some sort of very simple document. And then, you know, a few days or weeks later, you get some damn thing back from the chancery with the local ordinary signature on it saying, oh, yeah, you never had a marriage. And it's just handed out like candy. Now, faithful Catholics, if if this happens to them, many of them are going to look at this and they're going to know there's no way, there's no possible way that this can be right. Um, And this is what nobody wants to talk about. Is it... Is it inappropriate for a faithful Catholic who's gotten one of these unjust decrees of nullity issued by a faithless hireling bishop to say and live their life and say, I mean, almost the, the word disobedience is going to come up. I do not believe that my marriage was null. I am married. Our marriage was valid. And I am going to continue to live and, you know, I'm going to continue to refer to myself as Mrs. So-and-so, and I'm going to continue to refer to myself as a married woman. Now, the, the husband might be gone, or vice versa. The husband, the husband might be gone. The husband might have a new concubine that he's civilly, quote-unquote, married to, whatever. But can it, I think it's really important that, that faithful Catholics be able to make this distinction that there are times when it's going to be obvious that these degrees of nullity are handed out essentially by members of the anti-church. And we have to be able to discern this for ourselves. Now, I'll let you riff on that. And I know it's a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, because you said a lot of different things there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> as far as this, as far as this speedy annulments, where the bishop might sign a document quickly, that would not be applicable to the kind of people in our network because those only apply if both parties in unison petition for the decree of invalidity of marriage. So my situations are those where one party decree uh, applies for a decree of invalidity, and annulment is a shorter way to say it, and then the other party defends the marriage. Um, one of the things that Cardinal Raymond Burke has said repeatedly is that um, it's not that there's anything wrong with the process. What's wrong is that bishops have not properly – can you hold on a second while I look up this quote? Because I just of thought course, you know, if, it says, if it comes from Cardinal Raymond Burke, it's like good grief. Um, he says, with sadness, many times I have seen – that the diocesan bishop has not sufficiently taken care to prepare well the necessary personnel for his tribunal. In other words, it's not the process that has need of modifications, but the practice of some bishops who do not provide well-prepared and just workers for their tribunals. Now, for those who listen to Cardinal Raymond Burke, he's very precise and very careful in how he talks. And Mm -hmm. for him to go as far as saying that bishops do not provide well-prepared and just workers, that means he knows that bishops have tribunal workers who don't know what they're doing, and they're unjust and they're unfair. So... That's what's there. One of the things, like, what is someone supposed to do in that circumstance? Depending on how much mental energy they have to devote to it, Mary's advocates can teach them at the time of separation, 
to ask for the canon law on separation of spouses to be implemented. Using my example, if a husband abandons his wife and forces no-fault divorce on her, and in the back of his mind he's thinking, I'm going to get my annulment, and he knows a little bit enough to know that there's something that has something to do with immaturity, that you can get an annulment, he, he's heard, and, and that's malarkey, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. that's what a lot of people have heard. So the wife could go to the church and say, okay, church, my husband is abandoning me. I want the, the uh, implementation on the canons on separation of spouses. I would like you, church, to try to get us to reconcile. If that fails, I want a decree of separation based on the ground of malicious abandonment by my husband. And while we're at it, I want the church to instruct my husband of his obligations after the church trial. Mm, mm-hmm, so then mm-hmm. what happens? So then the husband's like, oh, shucks. My wife's not committing adultery, not gravely abusing me, and is not dangerous, but I left her. Hmm. Oh, I know. I'll use that little get-out-of-jail-free immaturity card. Yeah. Okay? So then, during the time of separation, he is going to say to the civil court and to the church, oh, I didn't really know what I was doing when I married her. And then you go look up. This is where... What, what Mary's Advocates is trying to do is entangle the U.S. Constitution that has a lot of things going for it and the Catholic Code of Canon Law so we get more just outcomes and we encourage abandoners to work on reconciling, which is going to make everybody happier and more virtuous, and especially the children. So um, I know I'm going off on a tangent here. Let me bring myself back. You are asking, what can the wife do if she goes through this whole church process and she knows it's malarkey? Yeah. So, at the time of separation, were you following what I was saying the wife could do? Yes. Okay. So then if if the husband says to the church, I was too immature to get married, well, then it becomes a question of, well, what damage have you done to this woman? And did you lie about your maturity? Did you lie to your priest? It's like these questions come up and they're supposed to be relevant to how um, obligations are determined. Presently, the government will determine obligations, but at least it would put a monkey wrench in their usually grease skids, straightforward, no-fault divorce. So, so that's one possibility that we could show the wife how to ask to implement. The other thing is, when you're talking about, you know, yes, there are some off-the-wall sodomite heretic bishops. Okay. But all the priests everywhere are not like that. All the priests that join the priesthood with a good heart, wanting to serve Jesus, loving Jesus, JP2 priests, theology of the body priests, whatever. Um, they, some of them got went to go get their canon law degree. How much did they learn about canons on separation of spouses when they went through school? You know, one guy I talked to way in the beginning of my research told me that it probably came up in one paragraph, one time, and he never thought about it again. Yeah. So if you've got a chancellor who's a good-hearted, Jesus-fearing priest, and you submit a petition like this, and he's asking for the implementation on the codes of canon law about separation, and he's never seen it before, who knows? Maybe he'll do the right thing. Maybe the abandoning husband will get a, a, a strong letter saying, hey, mister, you know, you promised this when you got married to be good, loving, good times and bad sickness and health. There's no legitimate, you know, your wife is saying that you're abandoning her. Explain yourself. I mean, the church has competence to do that. It's in their job description. So I'm just trying to teach people how to ask for it. 
Of course. And there, there are a few of those priests out there. Um, just wanting to reiterate something you just said. I think a lot of people out there, a lot of pew sitting Catholics are very much in the dark as to how bad priestly formation is. They're basically taught seven years of what could basic, basically be described as pop psychology and flatly heretical philosophy and theology. That's what most of it is. So yeah, Bay is absolutely right that these guys have, even if they've, even if they've studied canon law, don't don't be fooled into thinking that that actually means that there's a there's a thorough competence there because there isn't. Um, and I think what a lot of them, you know, and especially in the Novus Ordo, they're they're terrified of Bergoglio. They're terrified of this of crossing him and crossing his bishops, which is basically all of them. And what the way that Bergoglio is trying to frame all this is that issuing issuing a, a cookie cutter candy cane degree of nullity is a mercy. Oh, people make mistakes. Love fails. We need to let people move on with their lives and try to, you know, find love again. And it's all being framed as either you issue the degree of nullity or you're unmerciful, which is the worst thing that you can be accused of, even apparently over and above raping children. Being unmerciful is the worst thing that you could possibly be in Francis Church. And so they're all terrified of having someone come in and having to to speak to or write to a spouse and saying, you're in the wrong and we need to fix this. This marriage needs needs to be healed and can be healed. And if you refuse to do that, then you are in the wrong, which means you're in a state of sin. Um, oh, no, we, we can't possibly, possibly do that because that's quote unquote, scare quotes, unmerciful. So I think that's a huge dynamic. And speaking, speaking of Francis Church, you talk about um, immaturity. That has been one of the major citations that people have given for getting these, these cookie-cutter degrees of nullity for decades now. But there's a new one, and I'm, I know you remember this, Bay, from um, September of 2014, and that awful document that was promulgated by Bergoglio. Remember, it had the bullet point, it had like eight bullet point criteria for, you know, annulments. The last bullet point, number eight, was et cetera, dot, 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 which, by the way, by the way, the story on that is the reason that there was in this official papal document a list including et cetera, as a criterion for decree for a decree of nullity is because the, the document was drafted. It was sent to Bergoglio and Bergoglio just glanced at it and said, yep, that's good. Publish it as it is. And they said, well, you know, uh, Pope Francis, it, we left this this space here blank so you can add any other criterion that you want. And he said, no, it's good as it is. Just publish it as it is. And they said, well, do it. And he's like, publish it publish it exactly as it is. And they shrugged their shoulders. And so that's why it was published with criterion number eight being et cetera, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I remember. Criterion number one, hold on, criterion number one, do you remember what criterion number one was? Well, I'm looking at the motu proprio, article 14 that ends in et cetera. Yeah. Um, And the colon, the defective faith, which can generate simulation of consent or error that determines the will. 
lack of faith or a defect in faith, I immediately, immediately when that motu proprio came out, I had trad Catholics, I mean faithful, faithful people emailing me saying, Anne, I was really nervous the, the morning of my wedding. I was, I was nervous about getting married, as like almost everyone probably is. This is a completely normal, typical thing. Um, and these faithful Catholics said, I just read this document and I'm worried that I might not actually be married because it says a lack of faith is one of the things that can nullify. Maybe, maybe because I was so nervous and I was so scared on the morning of my wedding, maybe Christ didn't come and bind me to my spouse. And maybe all this time I haven't really been married. Maybe we're not married. Maybe we've been fornicating this whole time. And that just, I about lost it when I started seeing those emails come in and realize the evil, just the satanic evil that's at work here, trying to get even the most faithful people to start actually sitting down and question whether or not they've been married. Oh my gosh. This motu proprio where it talks about the defective faith and where it has the etc. It can be totally misunderstood. Someone can think that, oh, I didn't have enough faith when I got married, or certainly my husband didn't seem to have enough faith. So I guess the reason I'm unhappy is because we don't have a valid marriage. But what people miss, and the problem I have, Anne, Nullity and separation of spouses is complicated. It does depend on the situation. It's not something that you can explain in a quick soundbite. You know, the people fighting for um, for stopping abortion, a baby is either alive or dead. Abortion is, uh, uh, you know, deliberate abortion is always and everywhere wrong. Granting a, a decree of an invalidity of a marriage, sometimes it's it's needed. Sometimes it's legitimate. Having separation of spouses, sometimes it's legitimate. So what happened to this people who were interpreting this paragraph, they don't know, they don't look carefully, that all that all that stuff, it's it's article number, article 14, section one, the list that a lot of people were getting concerned about is the list for when a case could be handled by the means of the briefer process. Mm-hmm, He's just mm-hmm. saying when it can be handled by the briefer process. He's not saying these are grounds for annulment. And the average reader doesn't, you know, if you're hearing a soundbite, you don't know that. And then I remember an interview with Raymond Arroyo and Bishop Morlino of Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, look, I don't think we're going to have very many of cases that even fit the briefer, briefer process because so much of the information has to be a clear-cut case from the petition in the beginning, that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. If it's a case where a Catholic, you know, some of them have document, there's different kinds of cases and some of them are clear cut and some of them, most of them are, or at least most of the ones that are the psychological grounds, those are not clear cut. That's not possible to do according to this schedule anyway. Um, right. I would just put it. Question. Okay. Okay. The one about what do you tell the woman whose husband got granted an annulment in a diocese where she knows the bishop's office is is not loyal to the magisterium? Yeah. Um, If the woman wants to spend the time and energy, Mary's Advocates has resources to show her on a step-by-step way how to ask for her rights to be upheld. 
And there are some things in procedure that are so straightforward. Like when you get accused of something, you have a right to know what you're being accused of. And you have a right to know what facts in a general way support the accusation. Mm -hmm. If I accuse you of stealing a car in June, I have to tell you what day and I have to tell you where the car was stolen from. Now, Mm -hmm. I I point that out because in a decree of invalidity of marriage, the whole thing is supposed to start with a petition. The petitioner says, I think my marriage is invalid for this ground according to the law. And here's the reasons in a general way. You know, when I went into my marriage... I actually was married to somebody else two states over and I never told my wife. Clear cut, makes sense. Or Mm -hmm. when I went into my marriage, I kept secret from my wife that I was a transvestite or whatever. Or when I went into my- Had had a vasectomy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, um, I was suffering from, I don't even know the right vocabulary to use, but you know, fifth degree schizophrenia. I was Mm -hmm. having a lucid episode when we were courting. Um, at the time I just thought she was the sweetest thing and it would work out. But the truth of the matter is I'm really mixed up. I have like, you know, delusional episodes. I can't remember things. I've got psych reports to prove it. You know, I've been seeing psychologists my whole life and I kept this all a secret from my wife. Those are examples of facts and proofs in a general way that should be in a petition. The law says, especially now that that petition has to be given to the other side. Mm-hmm. Well, for example, in, the, in, our, in our story about this lady whose husband abandoned her, if she gets one of these citations that I've seen dioceses give that say, hi, your husband petitioned for a, degree of, a decree of invalidity, fill in the questionnaire. I show her how to write back and say, I'm sorry, this citation is legitimate. I'm happy to participate. I agree my marriage is valid. I haven't even been cited please send me my petition as required in law, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of examples. Mm -hmm. So we show her how to ask for her rights to be upheld. She can try. I don't get into the details of the merits of cases because it's very complicated. I don't have the brain capacity or the the time to do that with the people who reach out to me. But Mm -hmm. I point some really good resources. There's a book published by Ignatius Press that talks about grounds for nullity that has a, a preface by Cardinal Raymond Burke. So the people can do the best they can defending their rights. And then at the end of the day, if the annulment gets granted by the local tribunal, they can appeal and they've created a good paper trail where they ask for their record to be upheld. Now, what happens when they appeal? They can appeal to a a local tribunal that's set up to be the appellate tribunal. And the first thing they can bring is a complaint saying this whole case was done so nonsensically that it should be thrown in the garbage. It should be as if it didn't happen. It's called a complaint of nullity of sentence. So we show people how to do those. And if they created a good paper trail where they were asking for their rights to be upheld, I mean, I don't have a track record of dozens of cases where I can say, yeah, you know, this tribunal was doing it all wrong and now they're doing it correctly. But it's never going to get fixed if nobody asks. Right. So for the people who contact us, they have to discern whether they're going to be one of those who just remains faithful and goes their mm-hmm. prayerful route or whether they also be an activist and they they ask for things to be upheld in implementing canon law that's designed to strengthen marriage and then see where it goes. 
Right. Now, let me ask you this. Do you guys have any resources at Mary's Advocates for people who have years ago received what they now suspect to be a, a, a false degree of nullity, have gone ahead and remarried, but have but in that interstitial period after the remarriage have had what would have to be a reversion to the faith and are now sitting in a situation where they are remarried, again in scare quotes, because there's no such thing as remarried. They are remarried, but they now strongly, strongly suspect that their first marriage was in fact valid. And and there's no animosity with their current spouse at all. You know, I, I think that is just about the worst situation that a person could find themselves in to revert and find our Lord and want to be with and want to, you know, be in his church and receive the Eucharist, but then be in in a civil marriage with someone that they suspect, wait, this might not be this might not be right. Do you have any resources for those folks? Um, I'm a little confused on the scenario I described. Let me see if I got this straight. Somebody who was in a marriage and they're mm -hmm. divorced and then they entered a so-called second marriage. Yes. And they converted in the present. Now they're wondering if their so-called second marriage is actually adultery. Mm -hmm. Because they were given a cookie cutter annulment oh, on okay. the first marriage. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they're now questioning whether the annulment granted however long ago was mm -hmm. void, illegitimate. right. right. Um, I wish there was just diocesan canon lawyers who do this all the time because people ask me questions I haven't researched before and like, okay, there are laws, I mean, yes and no. It depends on what, how many years ago the annulment was granted because after a certain number of years, both parties, especially the other party has a right to a decree that is settled. So it's a, it's a settled matter. But mm -hmm. in some cases, like if new proofs were brought forward that were never brought forward in the other time, mm -hmm. new proofs, regardless of how many years later it is, can always be a reason for opening up a new investigation about nullity of marriage. Sure, because truth is truth and it doesn't change. So I would say that if if there isn't a support group or an apostolate out there right now for this, I suspect that this is a massive population of people, potentially, because remember, we're talking about people who would have to have a reversion, you know, all the way back into the church to where they were sitting down and sitting and asking themselves this excruciatingly unpleasant question. Is this marriage that I'm in right now, is this in fact adultery and was my first marriage actually valid? And that degree of nullity was nonsense. Um, I think there's a lot of people in this world right now running around that are in that situation. And I think that there, there is now, and especially as we move forward through time and this situation just gets worse and worse, there's going to be more and more people that are going to need some sort of a support. You know, two people who, granted, love each other love each other and even, you know, want to see each other get to heaven and priority number one is the sanct sanctity of each other. But having to transition that potentially from the context of a quote unquote marriage 
into the context of a holy friendship. Um, I think there's a lot of these people out there. And if there isn't an apostolate for that, if there's anybody out there listening, um, any priests, any anyone who might be interested in this, I think this is something for which there is now a demand and will be an, a, an increasing demand as the years go on. So just putting that out there for, for you, Bay, obviously you're extremely well connected in, in this community dealing with marriage and so forth, and for anybody out there listening. Well, and there's a difference between truth and culpability. If someone went in good-hearted and they did what the church instructed them to do and they filled in their questionnaire and out came, you know, 17 months later, a decree of invalidity of a marriage, if the person answered honestly and they were told you're free to enter a second marriage, well, actually you're free to enter a marriage because your first one was not a marriage, that person's not culpable. Because they, they honestly didn't know. Now, it's for the other people who are rewriting history mm-hmm. because they want to, for whatever reason, appear to be in the good standing of the church and enter their so-called second marriage and have it blessed by the church so it becomes a Catholic marriage. Those people are in trouble. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you asked in the beginning of this narrative, you were saying, what do you say to the wife who gets this decree of nullity that she knows is bogus? And she, mm-hmm. she knows this whole process was a violation of justice. And look, I knew my husband well enough to know, you know, the, the fairy tale that they latched into their sentence saying why our marriage was invalid was was just like shameful. This is just a, a sick joke for that yeah. woman. There's no law that says you have to enter a marriage. Mm-hmm. You're certainly free to believe and act like you are married. I mean, one, um, Cardinal Raymond Burke spoke in Philadelphia in March, and there were five separated faithful who went to this conference that Cuff was sponsoring, sponsoring Catholics United for the Faith. Mm-hmm. And during one of the breakouts, um, we got a little short snippet where a woman asked Cardinal Burke, you know, what do I do? What do I tell my children? If I know our marriage is valid, but the church, you know, sometimes there's abuses of process. If the church grants an annulment anyway in the local tribunal, Cardinal Burke just told her, you can tell your children you have to live according to your conscience. And if you believe your marriage is valid, you have to live that way. And you can always appeal. Mm hmm. Yep. And I, I it's it's really tricky these days um, talking about conscience because the enemy infiltrators of the church are trying to establish the primacy of conscience, which is a, which is essentially Freemasonry. It's trying to declare that man is his own God and and declare that the conscience has primacy. However, I do think the example that you just gave is an example of where if you if you believe and your conscience is screaming at you, I am married. I am validly married and I've gotten I've received a bogus decree of nullity. Yeah, I think that again going back to common sense, you have to think to yourself if I die in 30 seconds and I'm standing before Christ at my particular judgment and he says, "You know, you knew. You knew deep down and you believe that you were married." And yet you did X, Y, and Z against against your own conscience, and you believed that you were validly married. See, that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about um, issues of conscience and, and how that plays out at the particular judgment. 
Um, so I think that's a really good example of it. And it's such a shame that this business is that conscience, you, you almost can't even talk about it anymore because what, what anti-church and Freemasonry has turned it into is that your conscience is, is your judge and your God, and you are the determiner, the sole determiner of your own guilt, and you will be judged by yourself, not by Christ. Essentially, you know, kicking Christ off the throne of judgment and, and ensconcing the individual in it. Again, this is textbook Freemasonry. So, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a big mess, and I I really admire you, Bay, for the work that you're doing because it's got to be I don't know you maybe you have some some moments of of good news and so on and so forth, but I I would have to assume that what you're doing is largely kind of kind of thankless work because you're you're up against such a massive behemoth in terms of the anti-church and just you know heretics right. and right. Yeah, yeah right and and I had to learn I mean I and I'm learning it more all the time, that I just give up, you know, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Things are a mess. I abandon, you know, I'll do, this is God's problem. This is not Bay McFarland's problem. This is Jesus' <laughs> church. This is not Bay McFarland's church. If he wants me to be a pawn on his little chessboard, okay, what can I do? And I mean, you're talking about conscience and who judges things because marriage is a public institution that affects mm. the public good and the children. Mm. It is not something about which one is allowed to be one's own judge. Right. That's canon law. And what we're trying to do is to entangle the canon law with the Constitution and the way the church and government are managing marriage crisis could be changed. Now, whether or not it's changed in, in the short run, I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, if, if there was some husband out there who has been a breadwinner and then his wife, for whatever reason, is so disillusioned, you know, that she thinks she needs to go get a divorce... I'm hoping that one of those husbands will contact us and we can connect him with the religious liberties lawyer who's a consultant and we can look up the laws in his state and he can try to make case law mm -hmm. that the way marriage crises are being handled is unconstitutional. Yeah. Well, it's an uphill battle to be sure. Um, but as with, as with all of this, you know, we all anxiously, anxiously await the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. And I hope that I live to see it. And I'm sure you hope you live to see it too. But in the meantime, we just got to keep going no matter how thankless it is and no matter how much it seems that all the odds are against us because we know who wins in the end. But you got to have almost the micro focus. You know, if, if there's anything you can do to help one person here, one person there, if, if in your ministry you can, you can save one marriage and these spouses can come back together, you know, revert if reversion is necessary, deepen their faith and end up dying in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision, even if that's just for one couple, all of it will have been worth it. And like you said, we all have to put our egos in check and, and remind ourselves that we are just pawns on God's chessboard and it's up to him and he he will do as he sees fit and you can either fight that or you can go along with it and it's a lot easier to go along with it amen so i'd like to we're over an hour now so i'd like to wrap up but here's what i'd like to to propose to you bay 
I know, I know there's going to be huge feedback to this conversation. Uh, This was a really good conversation. I know there's a lot of people out there with a lot of questions. May I propose that Superdirt and I get this up on the website, let it cook and stew on the website for a week, 10 days, invite the listenership to send in any questions that they might have. And then in a week, 10 days, two weeks, something like that. And as you know, it's kind of contingent on super nerd schedule and all that kind of stuff that we do a follow-up show, a follow-up conversation. And all it is, is listener questions, which I will send to you in advance. Would you be amenable to something like that? Okay. Awesome. Cool. All right. So let's plan on doing that. So folks, if you have any questions that you would like to have addressed, um, by Bay McFarlane here in the context of the Barnhart podcast, go ahead and email those to, uh, podcast at barnhart.biz P O D C A S T at Barnhart B A R N H A R D T dot biz. Um, go ahead and put in the subject header something that makes it clear that this is a question about marriage and a question for Bay. And um, we will we will assemble that. We'll probably get five or six questions together and we will we will then record a follow up to this. And I think this could be very, very helpful. Um, I know that I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to come on today and take time out of your schedule and we were able to get this recorded and hopefully we can help some people with this. I, I'm very, very grateful to you, Bay, and I'm sure the listeners are, too. And now, Bay, do you have some do you want to plug give everybody your website and any of your projects that you have right now that you want to plug? Yeah, it's marysadvocates.org. And we've got some unique resources for anyone who's getting married or already married. We invite people to sign their wedding promises. We call it our true marriage proclamation set. But along with signing the wedding promises, you also sign a document where you designate that you want the church canon law to be implemented and you want church arbitrators to be applying canon law to your marriage should you ever have any conflict. This is a way to try to firm up what you're really doing when you married in contrast to letting the state and all those hangers on think that you wanted their version of a no-fault marriage. And then we also have the book, The Gift of Self, a spiritual companion for separated and divorce, faithful to the sacrament of marriage. If you know anybody that's gone through a divorce or is in the process of it, it's so refreshing to see the true church's understanding about marriage, even in the situations where it goes bad. The faithful spouse attitude towards the other spouse is not, you're not my spouse anymore. We're trying to model Jesus's love towards his church. Outstanding. All right. Well, that's it. Thank you so much, Bay, and God bless everyone. <laughs> 